0: If you would, open your Bible to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, we're in verse 23, and we're going to get all the way into verse 3 of chapter 3. And I want to begin by reading the passage. John chapter 2, verse 23, the Word of God reads, Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It couldn't be said more plainly than that. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This section of John's gospel is all about the necessity of the new birth. You must undergo a spiritual birth in order to be saved. And really there's a paradox in that because the question then becomes, what must I do to be born again? What is it that I can do in order to bring about this spiritual birth? And that seems like a a reasonable question, at least initially. But the question that we then have to ask is, what contribution did we have to our physical birth? What did you contribute to your birth into this world? What did you do to contribute to your conception? Nothing. And therefore, that translates right into this very birth that Jesus is referring to. We make no contribution to this. This must happen to us. There is a a spiritual birth that must take place in our lives, and there is absolutely nothing we can do to bring it about. And really, it's this aspect of our salvation that renders us completely unable. This exposes our complete inability. Nothing exposes the uselessness of man-made religion like the necessity of the new birth. We are completely at the mercy of God. We have no capacity within ourselves to bring about this second birth. And yet, unless we're born again... We cannot see the kingdom of God. It's very interesting. Our Lord's teaching on the new birth comes in a context that highlights inadequate faith. There is a faith that saves, and there is a faith that doesn't. The faith that doesn't originates entirely with man, it's natural, it's merely intellectual. The faith that saves originates entirely with God, it's spiritual, it's moral. And inadequate faith is seen first in the many, having seen Jesus' signs, many believed in his name, and yet he himself was not entrusting himself to them. And then inadequate faith is epitomized in Nicodemus, who also saw his signs, even recognizes that he had come from God, and yet still his faith is inadequate. Jesus tells him that unless he be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so the the theme of this passage revolves around inadequate faith. And we're going to frame our outline around that theme. We're going to see three things. You you don't have to write this down. Just listen. Inadequate faith expressed. We'll see that in chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Inadequate faith exemplified. We'll see that in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, and then inadequate faith exposed in chapter 3 and verse 3. And all of this will function to highlight that in order to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And so first, if you're taking notes, jot this down. Inadequate faith expressed. Inadequate faith Express. Look at verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. Now, we know from last time that Jesus went up to Jerusalem due to the nearness of the Passover. And when he came to the temple and saw it being used as a place of business, he emptied the place. And it was just a a stunning display of holy indignation. Following that, he remained in Jerusalem for the Passover, a week-long feast. And while there, he performed many signs, many miracles that testified to his true identity. And this has really posed a a puzzling challenge for many readers because here John is referring to the fact that Jesus performed many signs during that Passover, and yet John will go on to highlight the the second sign that Jesus performs at the end of chapter 4. And so it seems out of step with what John highlights. John, on the one hand here, is, is noting that Jesus performed many signs during the Passover in Jerusalem, and then he goes and highlights what he calls the second sign in a miracle that takes place at the end of chapter 4. John 4:54 says this, after that miracle, this is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. And so the question is this, how is that consistent? How could Jesus have been performing many signs in Jerusalem and then have this second sign that takes place at the end of chapter 4? And there are two matters we need to understand here. The first is expressed in John 20 and verse 30, where it says this, therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. In other words, John didn't record every sign Jesus did. In fact, he says in verse 25 of chapter 1 that if everything Jesus had done had been written in detail, the world itself would be insufficient to contain the books that would be written. Which leads to the second, that John is intensely selective in what he records. He is writing with purpose, and intentionality. And so that second sign in chapter 4 is simply the second sign he's chosen to highlight. It's the second sign that he has identified as being supremely noteworthy to put the identity of Christ on display. And so there's no contradiction at all. And as Jesus was performing these many signs in Jerusalem, many Believed in him, literally, believed into his name. On its own, this would appear to be saving faith. This is the exact same word used in the previous verse. Look at the middle of verse 22. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. In fact, it's the exact same word used in verse 11 in response to the wine miracle. And to verse 11, and his disciples believed in him. So that many believed into his name should be celebrated, right? But verse 24, Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. And there's a play on words here. Was not entrusting is the same word rendered believe in the previous verse. So Jesus wasn't believing in their believing. Or you could say it like this. Many trusted in his name, but he didn't entrust himself to them. He knew their faith was inadequate. You say, well, how did he know that? Look at the rest of verse 24. For he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now some say that the knowledge expressed here is only knowledge in general, that Jesus merely possessed general knowledge of what's in man, that this wasn't particular knowledge of each heart individually. But I think we can show that's false from John chapter 1 and verse 12. Look at it. It says, but as many as received him, that is, as many as received Christ, you could say, as many as believed in him savingly, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And so to those who believe with a faith that saves, to them Christ grants the right to become Children of God. And yet he wasn't granting that right to the many in Jerusalem. So Jesus must have particular knowledge of each heart individually to be able to grant them the right to become children of God on the basis of real saving faith. And he must know when they are believing with a faith that is less than saving. A faith that is inadequate. And really, this gets into the dynamics of the incarnation and the hypostatic union and the fact that Jesus is true God and true man. And on the one hand, he's true God, so he possesses all of the essential attributes of deity. On the other hand, he is true man, and his experience needs to be truly human as our representative. So there's this tension of, of how much access or or how aware is Jesus of his Divine essence, and, and how 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 much is he able to exercise that divine essence in the incarnation during his earthly ministry? I would just say it like this: He is God the Son, and in the incarnation, he has laid nothing aside of his divine essence. And so even in the incarnation, he has the Perfect, complete divine essence, or otherwise he would cease to be God in flesh. He is true God and true man. And as God, he is omniscient. He knows all things. But here's the thing. He submits the free use of his divine prerogatives or his divine attributes to the will of the Father, such that at any given point, he only knows what the Father wills that he knows. This is why he can say only the father knows the time of the son's return not even the son knows. And so we can conclude here based on John chapter 2 verses 24 and 25 that it was the father's will that he know each man individually that he be able to know the heart and be able to assess whether or not there was a real saving faith that had taken place. In fact, we know from elsewhere in the gospel records, it's the son who is the one that reveals the father. It's his prerogative to reveal the father to whom he wishes. And so Jesus knows. He knows the hearts of those who were Believing in him on account of the signs he was producing, and he knows their faith is inadequate, that it's less than saving faith. And so, why is it inadequate? Why was that faith something less than saving faith? Because its ground was the signs he was performing. Look at the end of verse 23. Many believed in his name, observing the signs. It was sign faith. It wasn't saving faith. You see, all signs do is prove that Jesus is from God. But that's just sign faith. The demons believe Jesus is from God. Again, All signs do is prove Jesus is from God. That's it. It's totally human. There's nothing heavenly about that kind of faith. That kind of faith isn't moral. It's merely intellectual. It's the kind of faith that can ultimately look to the sky and see that there are clouds and that it's about to rain and believe that it's going to rain. It's human. It's natural. And this foreshadows what's going to take place in John chapter 6 turn there for a moment. Jesus feeds the 5,000. And verse 14 says, therefore when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. They saw the sign, they recognized the sign, points to something about who he is, and so they believe he's the prophet that has come into the world, and yet there's so much they fail to understand, because in verse 15 it says, So Jesus, perceiving they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. They want to make him king, but they don't understand the true nature of his kingdom, Well, by now the crowd is stalking him, and so in verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. What he's saying there is that you have failed to understand the true significance of the sign. You ate and were full, and you just want to come and eat again. You want the the benefits of the sign, but you don't understand the ultimate significance of the sign and what it points to. And that then leads to this long discourse that begins in verse 27 where Jesus says, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. He's saying there, don't miss the true significance of the sign. You're missing it. And then from there, Jesus unpacks its full significance with the climax being in verse 60, that therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. When Jesus began to unpack the true significance of the sign and what it meant concerning him and how they needed to relate to him, they abandoned him because they were there for something less than that. And this anticipates what Jesus says in John 8, 31. Look at that for a moment. says there, so Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. One must continue in the word to be a true disciple. And so obviously those who withdrew were not true disciples. And so their faith was inadequate. And it was inadequate because it was sign faith. It was grounded in the sign and failed to realize the ultimate significance of the sign. And when they were confronted with its true significance, the inadequacy of their faith was exposed. It was sign faith, not saving faith. And it's worth pointing out that there are movements today that say that unless we perform signs with our preaching of the gospel, we will not see people come to saving faith in Christ, that there must be signs alongside of the gospel in order for people to believe. And that's out a step with reality on two points. One, it fails to reckon honestly with the earthly ministry of Christ. No one performed more miracles than Jesus, and when all was said and done, there were only a few who believed. And so if signs are necessary to engender faith, what did Jesus do wrong? And two, it makes saving faith an intellectual decision, something that can be merely manipulated, something subject to even human manipulation. And if that's all that saving faith is, then there would be no reason to be born again. And so we can see this inadequacy of faith being expressed here in chapter 2. We can see that there are many who believed in his name, but Jesus is not entrusting himself to them. He's not giving them the right to be called children of God because he knows that their faith is inadequate. But it might be helpful to have an object lesson it might be helpful to, to select one from among the many and be able to kind of look more closely at him to, to see this inadequacy of faith. And so I submit to you Exhibit A, Nicodemus. Because Nicodemus is one from among the many who believed into his name because of the signs that he saw but his faith was utterly inadequate. And so second, note this, Inadequate faith exemplified. Inadequate faith exemplified. Look at verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And it's very interesting the way that John connects these two portions of Scripture. Notice the way verse 25 ends. It says, For he himself knew what was in man. Now notice the way verse 1 begins. Now there was a man. And so Jesus is going to read the heart of Nicodemus. Jesus is going to see right into the soul of Nicodemus and answer a question he doesn't even ask. But it's the question on his heart. To understand a little bit about Nicodemus, you need to understand that he's a Pharisee. He belonged to the most fastidiously religious sect of Judaism. He was among the religious elite. He would have had a a resume like the Apostle Paul. He would have been circumcised the eighth day. He would have been of the nation of Israel, of a, a certain tribe of Israel. He would have been blameless as it relates to the outward conformity to the law on the outside. He had everything going for him. And the Jews believed the only way they would not enter the kingdom was if, one, they had apostatized, or two, if they had some grave wickedness in their lives. They believed the kingdom was theirs to lose because they were sons of Abraham. And so Nicodemus is in good shape. Not only is he a son of Abraham, not only would he, within the context of Judaism, not be apostate, but he also, by virtue of being this outwardly moral man, was not guilty of grave wickedness. So far as religion went, Nicodemus had achieved the heights of religious prestige. He belonged to the group that had assumed the chair of Moses. He was a teacher of the law. He wore the religious garb of the day. He was given the place of honor at banquets. He would have held a chief seat in the synagogue. He would have been respected by all, called rabbi by men. And furthermore, he's a ruler of the Jews, end of verse 1. That meant he served on the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the ruling court of the Jews. You can think of it as the the supreme court. He He was a part of the supreme court of Israel. I mean, he was in elite company. And yet he's troubled. He likely has no sense of assurance. And he may have been wrestling with the true significance of the signs he'd seen Jesus perform. And so verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night And said to him, Rabbi, we we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. You'll note that John indicates he came by night. There are various reasons that are given for why that might be. Some say it has no significance at all that John's just telling us what happened. Others say it's consistent with the practice of the Pharisees. They would study into the night, and so here he's being a good Pharisee by going to Jesus as a teacher and learning from him. Others say it's to avoid the crowds. With all the crowds pressing in on Nicodemus, Nicodemus wouldn't be able to have the kind of conversation he was wanting to have with him. And still others say that it's because he wants to do this by stealth. He, he doesn't want to be seen. He doesn't want anyone to know that he's going to Jesus because if he does, there's going to be reproach. If this becomes public, he's going to receive flack. And we've already read John 7, but turn there for a moment because Nicodemus is in John 7, and you can see the, the attitude of the Pharisees toward Jesus. You see it in verse 45. It says there, The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd which does not know the law is accursed. Verse 50, Nicodemus, he who came to him before, being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. He would have received reproach for going to see Jesus, and so he is doing it by stealth. He's not ready yet to receive reproach for Jesus' sake. And so he comes to him by night. And what he expresses there is the substance of inadequate faith. Look at it, Rabbi. We know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. That's sign faith. He respectfully calls Jesus Rabbi, Rabbi, He acknowledges that Jesus is a teacher. He recognizes that Jesus is from God. After all, he can't deny the signs. But all of that is inadequate. It's deficient. And he's troubled. Humanly speaking, Nicodemus has everything going for him, and yet he lacks an inner sense of assurance. And I really think that if we can just grab hold of Nicodemus for a moment, he really puts the need for the new birth on display. I mean, Nicodemus epitomizes why the new birth is so necessary. I mean, he is the absolute best one can achieve through works righteousness. This is the best it gets. When you look at Nicodemus and you look at his life, this is as good as it gets in religion. If you want to excel in religion, man-made religion, and you're going to earn a righteousness of your own, this is the best it gets. And it's not good. Because everything that Jesus says about the Pharisees in Matthew 23 is true of Nicodemus. He was a hypocrite. He taught one thing and did another. He shut people off from the kingdom of God because he had no idea how to enter it himself. He was a son of hell, and he would have made his disciples twice as much a son of hell as he was. He was a blind guide, spiritually blind, unable to lead anyone into the kingdom of God. He was a fool, incapable of exercising righteous discernment. He would tithe mint, dill, and cumin, but neglect the weightier things of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. He was clean on the outside, but inside he was full of robbery and self-indulgence. He was a whitewashed tomb, appearing beautiful on the outside, but inside being full of dead men's bones. That is quite a description and it's the best you get with religion. This is the best it gets. Clean on the outside, full of selfish indulgence and robbery on the inside. And he's actually better off than a number of the Pharisees because he's at least acknowledging that Jesus is from God. Many of the Pharisees said what? That he did what he did by the power of Satan So Nicodemus even has a leg up on many of the Pharisees here. And yet, his faith is totally inadequate. All he has is dead religion. No capacity within himself to please God. Not only is God unimpressed by dead religion, he despises it. He despises human attempts to establish a righteousness of their own. Now here's the thing, you might be the exact opposite of Nicodemus. You may be... The polar opposite, whereby you don't have a life of morality and a a life lived according to the law, where you have this sort of external form of religion, where the the outside of the cup is is beautiful. You may be over here and have a completely immoral lifestyle, but you are in the same boat if you think that you can rectify your situation by simply entering into a, a behavioral modification approach, that if you just tweak a little bit here and Clean up a little bit there that you can fix this all on your own. If you go that road, you're just like Nicodemus. You're both in the same boat. It can't be done. Salvation requires far more than behavior modification. It requires far more than just cleaning up the outside. It requires far more than that, something far more radical than that. because it requires something that only God can do. And so Nicodemus needs to understand why he's troubled. And Jesus is going to read his heart. And again, he's going to answer a question Nicodemus hasn't even asked yet. Note third, inadequate faith exposed. Inadequate faith exposed. Verse three, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, that means what? That means pay attention. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I mean, Jesus just cuts to the chase. Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot be saved. You cannot enter the kingdom of God. You can't know God. You can't have God. You don't love God. Apart from being born again, you have nothing. John only refers to the kingdom of God twice in this gospel, once here and the second time in verse 5. And in John, it's synonymous with eternal life. This is Nicodemus. If you want eternal life... You want the life of God. You're going to have to be born again. In fact, scripturally speaking, it's just synonymous with salvation. If you want to be saved, if you want to be delivered from your sin, if you want to have reconciliation with God, you must be born again. The word there, rendered again, can be rendered from above. And so Jesus is saying that salvation necessitates a birth that comes from heaven. It's a spiritual birth. This is a birth that is distinct from earthly physical birth. That's why we call it second birth. That's why it's born again, born a second time, born from above. The only thing is, this birth is internal. It takes place on the inside. It brings new life to the inner man. It transforms from the inside. It takes a person from spiritual death to spiritual life. It, it results in a radical change in a person's heart, one that alters the entire trajectory of their lives. It can be described as passing from darkness to light, from death to life, where the very life of God begins to pulsate through your spiritual veins. It results in a new heart. It results in new desires. It washes and cleanses from all sin and defilement of flesh. It pours the the very love of God within our hearts such that we suddenly have an overwhelming love for God. It is nothing short of regeneration. And Jesus says that unless this happens to you, you cannot be saved. I mean, you've got to put yourself in Nicodemus' shoes. It's probably a fairly older man. Jesus has just told him his religion is useless, that it amounts to nothing. In fact, it's worse than nothing. And he's telling Nicodemus that there's nothing he can do. There's no work he can perform. There are no steps he can take. He must be born from above, and he has no power within himself to bring it about. And so look at his response in verse 9. How can these things be? His entire life has been a waste. And not only is he no closer to God, he has no capacity to bridge the chasm that remains. He's been completely unmasked. And yet again, he provides the perfect object lesson. If there was another way into the kingdom, Nicodemus would have found it. If there was anything that man could do on his own to enter the kingdom of God, Nicodemus would have figured it out. He would have found a way to get it done. He would have already had it done. He was religious, may have been sincere, was active in ministry, was seemingly devoted to God. He was outwardly moral. He even believed that Jesus is from God. And yet he was no closer to seeing the kingdom than someone who wasn't all of those things. And so we can see this. Inadequate faith is earthly faith. It's it's faith from below. It's it's the faith of demons. Even the demons believe God is one and shudder. Saving faith is heavenly faith. It's faith from above. It's the kind of faith only the new birth can produce. Have you been born again? Have you been born from above? You say, well, James, what do I need to do to be born from above? There's nothing you can do to be born from above. Only God can do this. But I can tell you the message that God uses to bring about the new birth. And it begins with the reality that God is holy, perfect in righteousness, that he dwells in unapproachable light, that he is perfect life, that there is no darkness in him whatsoever. And that if you're going to spend eternity in his presence, you're going to need a perfect record of righteousness. In order for you to enter his kingdom, you're going to have to have a righteousness that is spotless, blameless. You can't stumble according to the law at even a single point. To stumble at one place is to render you guilty of the entire thing. So you've got to have a perfect standing of righteousness and you're already off on a a bad foot because you're a son of Adam. And Adam fell. And when Adam fell, the entire human race was plunged into sin. And now you've come into the world dead to sin, or rather dead in sin, spiritually dead. You're a slave of sin. And you're totally corrupt. Sin has infected every aspect of your entire being. You are incapable of doing anything that pleases God. Every aspect of who you are has been affected and infected by this depravity. And so you need a perfect righteousness, which you're already off on a wrong foot with because you've come into the world a slave to sin. And since being in this world and even reaching a point where you know the difference between right and wrong, you have sinned and done what you know is wrong. You have violated not just the the perfect standard of God's righteousness, you've even violated your own conscience. You've done things you know in your heart are evil, wicked, and worthy of judgment. And so at this point in time, it's not looking good. At this point in time, you stand condemned. You have an eternity of eternities to to sit under the wrath of God if things are not remedied, and you can do at this point nothing to remedy them. But God sent his son, and his son came and was born of a virgin, and he became not just true God because he's been true God for all of eternity, but true man. He's true God and true man, and he lived On this earth, he dwelt among us, and he subjected himself to the law. He accomplished what we couldn't. He subjected himself to the Father's will, fulfilled it in every respect, was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. And he lived that life of perfect righteousness here on this earth and took that righteousness all the way to the cross. And he got up on that cross, and on that cross, the Father poured his righteous wrath and indignation upon him such that he was experiencing the the punishment for the sins of all who would ever believe on his name, and he swallowed that cup in full, and he died upon that cross and went into the grave and rose on the third day such that now all who would ever believe on his name are going to be given, credited with his righteousness." And so, the very righteousness that you need to stand holy and blameless before God, which you have no capacity in and of yourself to attain, Christ has accomplished and then paid for your sin, such that now, if you would believe on his name, you will be saved. Declared righteous. Your entire debt of sin will be wiped clean. You will have a perfect standing before God because it will be the, the standing and righteousness of Jesus and you will have full confidence that, that when the Lord returns, you will be his and he will bring you to heaven and you will dwell on the glory and presence of God and you will enjoy eternal life for all of eternity. And so I can't tell you how to be born again. I can just tell you that you, just need, you need to believe what I just told you. You need to believe the message of salvation in Christ and may God open your heart to receive him and believe on him that you would receive his righteousness and stand holy and blameless before him on that great day. Unless you be born again, You cannot enter the kingdom of God. Let us pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for this portion of your word. We're so thankful for Just the scene that we're exposed to in Jerusalem, as many see the signs of Jesus and believe in him with inadequate faith, faith that doesn't save. And we thank you for Nicodemus, and we thank you that he was troubled, and we thank you that he went to Jesus by night, and that he had this conversation with Jesus, and that Jesus told him point blank, unless he be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God, your kingdom. And so, Father, we see our need to be born from above. We see our need for spiritual birth, rebirth, regeneration. And, Father, we pray that if there be any heart here this day that has not experienced second birth, birth from above, spiritual birth, that you would grant that this day through the preaching of the gospel,